Scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 13. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that'll be on page number 968. And it reads, And it came to pass on the morrow that there were rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that, had, that they had been with Jesus. Good morning, and Happy New Year to you. And whether you stayed up to watch the ball drop or just went to sleep and treated it like any other night, uh, we're glad that you're with us here on this first Sunday morning uh, of the new year. I know for a fact that a lot of you pulled an all-nighter with us uh, because I think about 150 of you stayed and helped with uh, or were a part of the New Year's Eve lock-in that we had with our youth group. It was a great event, and I'm really thankful for all of you who came and helped. We had a lot of college kids and adults who were in attendance, and a lot of kids who came out, and uh, we had a great time. Now, as, as it's a new year, and in a new year we kind of emphasize things and re-emphasize things, and so uh, let me get into a mindset of, of making some announcements, and, and, uh, and let me emphasize to you about, I guess, about four things very quickly that we need to begin, uh, we need to, to do before we begin our study this morning. The first is this, uh, we have come out with our new uh, congregational calendar and uh, we have all these available in the lobby and exits and entrances all over the place in the building. And you'll notice there's a lot of events going on this year. And just about every month we've got one, at least one event that's in bold. And that doesn't mean it's anything more important than the other events. It just means it's something for the entire congregation that the whole church can be a part of. So if you will, pick one of these up. The second thing I need to announce to you is uh, that we are beginning, I guess yesterday we kicked off the first day of our year through uh, the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs, we're using a Bible study aid uh, that we're calling Immersed in Awe. And uh, we're using that as a Bible journal, uh, as an aid that we'll use as we read 365 days through the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. You may have seen these books lying on the pew or in the windowsills or different places around the building. Um, so if you would, pick one of those up if you haven't done that yet. And by the way, I couldn't help but notice that a few of you have put your names in the book or kind of personalize them uh, to make them look kind of like creative and make them look your own. For instance, I got a look at David Minton's book and it looked like this. So that's really lovely. Oh, well, that's not it. Where is it? There it is. 
Good. That joke would have worked better if the things were in order. We'll try it again at the second service. But anyway, if you'll notice, uh, there's a verse printed at the bottom of the cover page uh, that comes from Psalm 119, verse 61, that says, But my heart stands in awe of your word. The psalmist understood how awesome that the word of God truly is and how really, how powerful that it is. And I want us to be that same kind of people. I want us to have that same kind of love for the word of God as we read through the New Testament. The next thing I need to mention that you kind of already saw is uh, an event that we call Pew Packers. And that goes on every Sunday evening about 545 is when we start. And I just want to emphasize that event. I think it's time to do that. And uh, about 5.45, if parents, if you can get here about 15 minutes early, we're going to have all the kids come and sit up on the stage. So I don't know if we should start calling it Stage Packers or what, but we're going to have all the kids come up here and we're going to sing some songs together and just have a short time of fellowship where we're learning more about God. Finally, the last thing I want to mention as we get started is something we're calling a vision meeting. And that's tonight for all of the adults, any of the youth workers, anybody who's remotely interested in the youth program here, that's for all of our adults and any kids 6th through 12th grades. And uh, we're excited about the things that God has in store for us in this new year for our youth program. And we're also very thankful for the great things that God has done for us in this past year. So that's tonight at, at um, immediately following the worship right after church tonight. This morning I had the great privilege and responsibility of introducing our theme for the whole year. We're using a word that basically describes what we want to be as God's church and what we want to be as individuals. That word is immersed. And all year long, we're going to talk about what that word means, and we're going to emphasize that word. If you'll notice in your worship handout this morning, you've got an outline from the sermon today. And uh, I'm thankful that Miss Tammy could work that in today. Uh, so if you'll follow along, that'll kind of help you in our study today as we kind of notice some things from Acts chapter 4. What does it mean to be immersed? That's where we'll begin. We need to kind of define that word. Well, really, it's a powerful word that means two things. Number one, it means to plunge into. It means to plunge into. And Trey led a couple songs that mentioned that being plunged um, in the blood of, of Calvary, I think we sang and victory in Jesus, being plunged in victory. Um, the first word, the first definition, I guess, is the way it means to plunge into. I want you to think about an Olympic diver who climbs to the very, very top of a ladder, and he goes out to the end of that diving board, and he just takes a dive. He takes a plunge. And when he hits the water, he doesn't just kind of skim it or, or hit it and go only a few inches in. If he did, he'd be dead. He goes really, really deeply into the water, doesn't he? And you've got underwater cameras that show you just how deeply that he dives. That's what it means to be immersed. He is immersed. He's taking the plunge. And then also the word has another meaning. Number two, it means to involve deeply and to absorb. Whenever you're in the pool for a long amount of time, you, you notice that your body begins to do something. You notice this your hands and your fingers begin to get all wrinkly. You ever notice that? For me, my body has some crazy reaction time. It takes me about five minutes for my fingers to go all wrinkly. I, I don't know what it is that causes me to do this, but I turn into an old man in about five minutes. It's, uh, it's, it's really weird. It's like a superpower or something. Um, a really, really lame, terrible superpower. But um, that part, that, this part of what it means... To be immersed. It means to, to absorb. 
your fingers get all wrinkly because your body has been in that water for so long that it, it, ha, it has absorbed water and, and you're immersed in it. So that's what immerse means. But, but I'm curious, when you first heard that word immerse or when you first hear that word, what do you think of? What do you think of immediately? I have a feeling that a lot of you and maybe most of us who've grown up in the church associate that word immersed with baptism, right? That's kind of a church word that we use. Uh, it, it means when someone is baptized, they're completely covered by water. That's what it means to be immersed. That I'm not saying that this is absolutely true of you, but let me throw something your way that may carry some weight. I wonder if sometimes we associate the word immerse with baptism so much that we lose part of the understanding and the meaning of what the word immerse means. Maybe we associate them together too much because immersion doesn't only pertain to baptism. It means so much more than that. And over the course of this year, we'll begin to see that. Maybe when you heard that word immerse, though, you thought about it in a completely different context. Maybe in terms of a foreign language, a foreign language or in terms of a culture. Let's just pretend that, for instance, let's pretend that after nine years of youth ministry, I decided to move to El Salvador. Now, that's completely hypothetical, and it never, that kind of thing never happens, <laughs> but just work with me here. Let's pretend that I moved to El Salvador, and um, if I move to El Salvador, I'm going to have to learn how to speak Spanish if I want to communicate with the Spanish-speaking people. And so language immersion school may be the way that I do that. Here's what that means. It means I go to classes that are completely taught in Spanish. The teachers speak Spanish. The books are in Spanish. The students have to respond in Spanish. Everything is in Spanish. And here's the crazy thing about it. It works. It works because you're completely surrounded by that language so much, you, you almost are forced to learn that language. And, and really, it's one of the best ways to learn a foreign language. And so as we begin to, to gain a greater understanding of the word immersed, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 5. It was just read a moment ago, but let's begin our study together in Acts 4 verse 5. It says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. All right, very quickly, let's call time out here, and we need to meet the characters in the story. We're about to see Peter and John go before the rulers, and in this context, I think that's the synagogue rulers. He's also going to go, they're going to go before the elders, the very respected men of the Jewish tradition, and the scribes, the one whose job it was to meticulously hand copy and hand write the word of God, a job they took very seriously, and also the members of the high priestly family. And as you probably know, the, the office of a priest was a big deal. But maybe sometimes we forget that the, along with the priest came the idea of being a family ordeal because the high priest would train up his son to be the next high priest and the next son would train up his son and, and the high priest 
was like a, a royal family. It was the priesthood was a family. And so notice also in verse 6 a few names that you might recognize from that family. Their names are Annas and Caiaphas. They're the high priests in this story. And in fact, they've been the high priest since the birth of John the Baptist. You might remember that they were two key players, Annas and Caiaphas, two key players in the story of Jesus' crucifixion when he stood before them on trial as he was passed from person to person and court to court. So in a way that you might say that Peter and John are standing in front of the Jewish Supreme Court because these guys are high up on the totem pole. But why? Why are they here? What brought them here? Why are they standing before these men? In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a lame man. He was a lame beggar sitting outside of the temple. It was the Jewish hour of prayer. And so it was a very busy time of day, a lot of foot traffic, a lot of coming and going. And naturally at this place and at this time of day, the miracle of Peter and John healing the lame man begins to create quite a stir. And it draws the attention of a great number of people there. And Peter uses that miracle as an opportunity to teach everybody there about Jesus and who he was and that he had raised from the dead. And so word gets out to the religious leaders that Peter and John are teaching about Jesus' resurrection And to be honest, they don't like it. They have them thrown in jail. They don't want people to hear this message. And so imagine being a Jew living in that day and time and having to stand and testify before these guys, the rulers, the scribes, the high priestly family. That's a big deal. And to say that this would have been an intimidating scene would be an understatement. But let's read on and see what happens. Verse 7, when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? By the way, doesn't it seem like these guys always had authority issues? They were always going up to Jesus and said, By whose power did you do this? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and speaking of familiar lines, does that line look familiar to you? Because remember the last time that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak, big things happened. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, right after the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, he stood up and he preached such a powerful sermon about Jesus that over 3,000 people were baptized. Anytime that we read about somebody being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we ought to expect big things because the Bible tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came to Gideon, Samson, David, John the Baptist, and Jesus, to name a few. That's quite a list. And here we read about Peter. So back to verse 8, Peter says, Ruler of the people and elders. Rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We're talking this morning about the idea of being immersed. And if I may, let me call that idea to mind about the Spanish immersion school or a foreign language immersion school one more time. But let me take it a step further. I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be a full-time student in a different kind of immersion school. Imagine being a student 
a full-time student of Jesus Christ, you quit your job and you begin spending all of your time with him. He teaches you. He asks you questions. He lets you ask questions. You share meals together. You follow him around. You take field trips. And you listen as he preaches powerful sermons. But best of all, you get to observe him at work. You see him do miracles. You see the way that he treats others. You get to see the way that he handles his critics. You see him live out these powerful sermons that he preaches. Brothers and sisters, that's what being an apostle meant. It was a full-time job. It was literally an immersion school in the truest sense of the word because being an apostle was both a plunge and it was also an absorbing of Jesus Christ, the man. And brothers and sisters, I don't want to be only immersed in water. I want to be immersed in Jesus. I want to live like that. Well, what does that mean? And what does that require of us to be immersed in Jesus? I think the answer here is in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. There was something that set Peter and John apart from the rest of the men that have stood before this council. Imagine all of the men who must have stood there before that Jewish council. What was it that set Peter and John apart? Verse 13 says it was their boldness. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they knew that they had been with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, here's a major point. Write this down on your outlines. If we want to be immersed in Jesus, it requires and demands boldness. It was boldness that set Peter and John apart. Underline that word boldness in your Bibles in verse 13. Following Jesus requires boldness. It demands boldness. You can't follow Jesus without being bold. In fact, if, if, our Lord, if, if faith in the Lord is not requiring boldness of us, then we're probably not living it right. Think about it. If we want to be immersed in Jesus, it means that we understand that we will have to do and say bold things. That's like Jesus 101. Again, if, if we were apostles enrolled in a Jesus immersion course, then we'd figure out very quickly that Jesus was a man who didn't hold back from saying or doing bold things. Okay, you got that word boldness underlined? Here's the next thing I want you to do. I want you to go back through Peter's message. It's only five verses in 8 through 12. And I want you to look for boldness in his message. Where do you see it? How about in verse 9, when he says, in effect, okay, let me get this straight. You called us here because of a good deed, and not just any good deed, for healing a crippled man. So that's kind of a bold way to begin a speech, right? Sounds, kind of like, sounds to me kind of like Jesus when he said, so you guys are upset that I healed someone on the Sabbath. <laughs> I see boldness in verse 10 when Peter says, okay, I'll tell you exactly by whose power and in whose name I did this miracle. It was Jesus Christ. I see boldness in verse 10 when he says, Oh, you know Jesus Christ, don't you? The one you crucified? I see boldness in verse 11. He says, You guys were supposed to be the builders, and you rejected the chief cornerstone. And then in verse 12, he makes the boldest statement of all. He says, There is no other name that can save anybody. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. You don't think that's bold? Try going in any public place. Try going on an intercom and making an announcement like that. Try going on TV and saying that. Try going on the radio and saying that. Because 
When the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to be saved, that eliminates every other way. Our culture doesn't like to hear that. And maybe we don't like to talk about it sometimes. But that's God talking, not me. It was Jesus who said, no man comes to the Father except through me. I don't make up the rules. If I did, they'd be different. Every meal would feature candy corn as a side item, and there'd be such a thing as a, as a Fruity Pebbles air freshener. But I don't make the rules. Peter didn't act like an awestruck, cowardly lion standing before the Wizard of Oz. He didn't get scared. He didn't back down, even though the members of that council were the brightest of the bright when it came to being, quote, religious scholars. There's a couple of other things I'd like us to notice here in verse 13. The first is their perception of Peter and John. Did you catch it? Yes, it's, it's the boldness that set them apart, but look what else floored them. It says they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And if you read that verse, if you're like me, you think, well, that sounds kind of like a put down, right? It sounds kind of like maybe a little bit of a slight that Peter and John are, are a couple of dummies and these guys are all high and mighty. But maybe it's not as much of a put down as we initially think because the facts are the facts. Let's be honest about it. Peter and John were ordinary guys. They were fishermen. They didn't have, they didn't study under a traditionally revered Jewish rabbi. They didn't have a doctorate in New Testament theology. They weren't, quote, studied or scholarly. And I love how Jesus would choose uneducated, common guys in his school of apostleship. And then he'd turn around later on and he'd choose a guy like the Apostle Paul. Because in terms of a resume, you couldn't get more opposite of the Apostle Peter than the Apostle Paul. What I love about it is it, it just goes to show us that Jesus can use anybody, and he does. He uses everybody. He uses guys with a Ph.D., and then he uses people who are ordinary. You don't have to have a Ph.D., but if you do, he'll use you too. It's like the old line that we sing in the old hymn, He will teach if you will learn. But the ironic thing about their perceptions about Peter and John is that they're completely false. They weren't, quote, uneducated anymore. They'd been with the master teacher. In reality, they were more educated than the most educated. And they weren't common anymore either. There was nothing common about their rabbi. There was nothing common about their new purpose of taking the gospel into all the world. There was nothing common about the Holy Spirit that was now powerfully and evidently at work in their lives. But the other thing I want you to notice about verse 13 is that word astonished. That's a word that we see over and over again in the stories and in the life of Jesus. There were times when Jesus would say things and do things that people would just feel astonished. And that's all they could feel. They stood there speechless. When these men see, had seen and heard what Peter had said, they had a familiar, uncomfortable feeling in the pit of their stomach. They had to be thinking, oh, we've seen this before. That familiar, uneasy feeling that only Jesus could put there, left them feeling astonished. And so their jaws drop, and they can't believe what they're hearing, and they can't believe who they're hearing it from. It had to be the, the ultimate feeling of deja vu, almost like Jesus was standing before them once again. As we wrap up this morning, there's a lot that we could pull from this story. And there's a whole lot more in the verses that follow, but our time's running out. And so as we close, let's, let's think about the part of the sermon that we want to take with us when we leave, the so what, the life lessons that come 
from this very rich text. Number one, where in my life do I need the boldness of Jesus? Where in my life do I need the boldness of Jesus? The apostles were immersed in the boldness of our Lord, weren't they? They were immersed. And we said earlier that following Jesus isn't, if, if it isn't requiring boldness of us, then maybe we're not living it right. Where do you need boldness? Do you need boldness to take Jesus to a friend? Do you need boldness to to speak up about their spiritual life? Because at first it might seem kind of awkward and weird, but we ought to have the boldness to speak about Jesus. Do you need the boldness of Jesus to speak up for someone else? Maybe someone you know has been mistreated or made fun of or ignored. Jesus wouldn't have put up with that. In fact, there were few things that bothered him more than seeing someone mistreated. Do you need the boldness of Jesus to say what needs to be said? Do you need the boldness of Jesus when it comes to being the voice of reason in the life of a friend? We need bold Christians. Your friends need you to speak up. Where do you need the boldness of Jesus? Number two, don't overlook the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in this story or in your story. We didn't say a lot about it yet, but don't miss it. Don't miss the Holy Spirit in this story. You might have already considered this, but I want you to notice something that that I'd never noticed until I started studying for this message. This isn't the first time that Peter and John have stood before or stood in the midst of Caiaphas and Annas. I wish we had more time to look at it, but if you want to, turn over to John chapter 18 if you want to glance there. Peter and John are watching helplessly from a distance as Jesus stands on trial before Caiaphas and Annas. And Peter is not so bold here. This is a different Peter. He's standing on the sidelines, doing his best to blend in. He's warming himself by the fire as Jesus stands on trial. And it is here with Caiaphas and Annas only a few feet away that Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is. The story from Acts chapter 4 couldn't be more opposite. In a way, it's like a second chance for all the parties involved, isn't it? It's a do-over. It's a shot at redemption. Another chance to speak out and to speak up on the Lord's behalf. But here's the question that came to my mind. It says that they knew that they'd been with Jesus. But hadn't Peter and John been with Jesus the first time? What's the difference here? They'd seen the risen Lord? Yes, but I'm not so sure that that's the complete answer. I think the biggest reason this story reads differently is because it features a different character. These men had been immersed by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. They've been immersed by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit empowered them to speak with the boldness in His name. And when these guys saw the boldness of Peter and John, this time they knew that it wasn't the same Peter and John from before. No longer were they the timid follow from a distance, safe disciples of Jesus Christ from the night of his crucifixion. The Holy Spirit's powerful presence was the difference. And the Holy Spirit should empower us and should enable us to have the boldness and the courage to carry out God's will. And number three, and finally, the thing that I found myself, the question I found myself asking personally as, uh, as I studied this was, how do others perceive me? How do others perceive me? When others see me, what, or the better question is who, do they see? When others see me, do they see me or do they see Christ? 
When others listen to me talk, what do they hear? Do they hear me or do they hear Christ? The council of men saw Peter and John and they saw their behavior and they perceived that they had been with Jesus. Maybe some of you know that I moved here from a small town called Savannah, Tennessee. And maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't. But it's a really small town where all the kids in the high school go to the same school. It's like a a county school. Maybe you've heard of one of those. All the kids went to Hardin County High School. And uh, it was really neat. It was actually located right across the street from the church building. So it was neat. Anytime that I wanted to go and like visit the kids, they had kind of an open door policy. We had a really good relationship with the school across the street. They come over and use our building, and we go over there and use their facilities from time to time. And so um, I remember any time I wanted to go visit with the kids at lunchtime, I could go over there and, and just kind of hang out and visit with them. And uh, I remember on this one particular day, I, I went and I sat down uh, with this, this kid from my youth group, a kid from church. We'll call him Josh. And I sat down with Josh that day, and uh, I was visiting with him, just saying hello. And uh, after, a, after a short time, Josh got up to throw his trash away. And as soon as he left, you know, there's all these other kids around the table. There was a girl at that table who said, so who are you? (laughs) Kind of that awkward feeling of who is this guy and why is he here at my table? Um, But she said, who are you? And I said, well, I work at the church across the street. My name's Philip. I'm the youth minister over there. And um, she said, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm Josh's youth minister. And she said, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that Josh goes to church? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? She looked at me astonished. When others look at you, listen to you, and make perceptions about you, do they recognize that you've been with Jesus? Are you immersed? You know, we, can't talk of, we can talk about being immersed all that we want to. We can talk about it over and over again, but the truth is we can't be immersed with Christ until we've been immersed into Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, As many of us have been, as have been baptized have put on Christ Jesus. That's how we're immersed into Jesus, and we want you to make that decision. But I don't want to be immersed only in water. I want to be immersed in Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, I want to be immersed in Jesus too, but, but I'm not living that way right now. I'm not immersed in Jesus. I'm, I'm immersed in self. But I want others to see Jesus when they see me. Jesus can immerse you in his love and in his blood. It is greater than all of our sin. It is greater than all of our guilt. And if we will turn to him, he will not turn us away. If there's anything we can do for you, please come as together we stand and sing.